All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it is uh, great to, to gather with you this morning as we uh, jump into God's Word again this morning. Uh, last week, we finished the book of 2 Timothy. We had spent a couple months in 2 Timothy. And as we enter into the summer months, we're just going to take some time uh, over the next month or two just to, to look at some of the foundations, if you will, of the Christian life. And so we'll be looking at a number of different topics. We'll be looking at prayer for a few weeks. We'll be looking at uh, what is the church? What is the purpose of gathering together? Is this a part of God's plan? Uh, so we'll take some time to look at that. We'll, we'll look at how a Christian should actually engage in their civil responsibilities, their civic responsibilities. Um, what does it look like for us to engage in government? And then we'll also take a few weeks, and that's what we're going to do this morning and next week. We're going to look at the foundations of the Christian life. Or how should a Christian live? How are we called to live? And I use that language intentionally because the Bible makes it very clear that Christians are called to live in a certain way. That we, as followers of Jesus, are supposed to live in a certain way. But the question, of course, is what is that way? And that's going to be our focus this morning in Titus chapter 2. Next week will be in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll look at a similar passage. And the overarching message of this week and of next week is that one of the primary ways that we worship God is not just through song, as we just got done doing, but it's through our good works. The book of Romans puts it this way. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So part of being a follower of Jesus is to live this life of worship through our good works. In other words, one of the ways that we declare that God is worth following, worship, worth following, is to live a life of good works. And that term, good works, is oftentimes used in Christian circles, so, but, but I want us to take a moment to just make sure we're all on the same page and give us a working definition of what we actually mean when we talk about good works. First and foremost, good works cannot earn our salvation from God. Ephesians makes that very clear. Ephesians 2 says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And this morning's passage in Titus makes that very clear as well. A right relationship with God is an act of grace alone. It doesn't matter how much good you have done in your life, it won't change your status before God. And yet at the exact same time, good works are, simply put, they are good. They are a good thing. They are worth pursuing. They are an act of worship. Good works are near to God's heart. To illustrate how highly God values the good works of his people, I want us to ask a question. Why does God save people? Why did Jesus go to the cross? And if you were to ask my kids, my toddlers, they would probably say, well, it's because Jesus loves me, which is an absolutely 100% correct answer. But it's not the only answer that the Bible gives us of why Jesus saves people, why Jesus dies for people. Many times the Bible tells us that God saves people as a sign of his own righteousness, 
as a sign of his own faithfulness, as a sign of his own grace. In other words, the very fact that the church exists is proof positive that God is who he claims to be. So that's one of the reasons why God saves people. Elsewhere in the Bible, it tells us God saves people as a sign of his victory over the accuser, over Satan. And many times, the Bible tells us that God saves people so that they would live holy lives, so that they would live lives of good works. In other words, the Bible tells us that God saves people so that they will live lives of good works. And this is an oft-neglected area of, of the church. This is one of the reasons why God saves us, that God has saved you, is so that you would live a life that is different than those who are around you. That the life you live right now would be a reflection of the values of Jesus' forever kingdom. In fact, that's a, probably a good place to start when we're talking about a definition of what the Bible means when it talks about good works. It's this lifestyle that sets you apart from the rest of the world, a lifestyle that reflects the values of the kingdom that Jesus is going to bring once and for all and forever when he returns. In other words, when the Bible talks about good works, it means something more than just random acts of kindness. As we're going to soon see, Paul has just got done in Titus chapter 2, he's just got done talking about what good works will look like for specific groups of people in the church. That's Titus 2 verses 1 through 10. I encourage you to take a look at some of the specific ways that God wants people to live in the church by looking at that after the service. When Jesus says, I've saved you so that you will live a life of good works, he gives us some very concrete application there in verses 1 through 10 for various areas of the church. But one way of putting a broader definition from the Bible of what a good work is, what what good works are for us if we are going to worship Jesus through our good works is, is simply this way. Good works are obedience to Jesus, for Jesus, by the power of Jesus. Let me say that again. Good works are obedience to Jesus, for Jesus, by the power of Jesus. Good works, what is a good work, is determined by observing God's word, by looking and seeing what God, God says in his word, not what our culture says, not even what we consider to be good. They are a form of obedience to Jesus. But also good works are done with a certain motive in mind. They are done for Jesus. They are done as an act of worship to him. They aren't done out of obligation. They aren't done as a, a sense of duty. They, they aren't done out of a sense of selfishness or, or trying to look good or, or get people to notice us or be impressed or even that God would notice us, that God would be impressed with us. They are done as a sign of love for Jesus, as an act of worship. And good works are also done by the power of Jesus. The Bible makes it very clear that the Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to bear fruit. This is why they're called the fruit of the Spirit. That is the power of God in us that allows us, enables us to live a life that is more like Jesus. If you take seriously God's calling on your life to produce good works in your life, then you need the Spirit's help. 
You need the Spirit's power in your life to do exactly that. Good works are obedience to Jesus, for Jesus, by the power of Jesus. And for the Apostle Paul, when he uses this term good works, most of the time he's just using it for shorthand as a way of saying, you know what, I want you to live a life like Jesus. Just, just live a life like Jesus. No one else has ever lived a life in complete obedience to the commands of God. No one else has lived their life fully for the glory of God. No one else has been equipped by the Spirit as fully as Jesus is to, to live out this life of good works. And so if you want to live a life of good works... Just live like Jesus. A couple decades ago, do you remember those wristbands, WWJD? I don't think those are still a thing anymore, are they? I don't think they are. WWJD, what would Jesus do, right? That's a horrible gospel. That's a horrible gospel. If that's how you're going to save yourself, that's, that's, just, that, that's anti-gospel, really. It's a horrible gospel. And yet it is a beautiful ethic. It's a beautiful way to worship Jesus, to worship God, to ask yourself, what would Jesus do to live a life like Jesus? So I want us to consider this morning how essential are good works to the Christian life. That's what Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 are describing for us. And I want us to, to work our way through this text by answering the three questions that this text really answers for us. So we're just going to go ahead and follow this text all the way through, verses 11 through 14. If you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Father, as, as we turn our attention to your word this morning and, and we specifically look at this calling of the Christian's life, we, we thank you for passages such as this that, that make it very clear to us that a life of good works, they will not save us, but they are an overflow of the grace of God that has appeared to bring salvation to people like us. And God, as we consider this passage, we ask that you would stir our hearts so that we would become a people who, even as Paul says here at the end of this passage, that you would stir our hearts so that we would be a people who are zealous for good works. God, we ask that you would bless this time in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if, uh, if you were under any illusion about the purpose of good works, this passage makes it very clear what that purpose is and puts false assumptions to rest for us. It starts by saying it is the grace of God that brings salvation. It is the grace of God that brings salvation. 
What is the foundation of the Christian life? It reminds us of the gospel, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Any discussion of the role or the importance of good works has to start with this reminder. It is the grace of God that brings salvation for us. It's not any work. It's not any merit of our own, that this grace has at long last appeared in the person of Jesus. The Old Testament tells us of this longing for the grace of God to be at long last revealed to his people. The expectations of the prophets that God would one day show up and establish his kingdom by delivering his people from their enemies in one fell swoop. But they couldn't imagine the greatness of our need nor the greatness of God's plan to save people. The greatest need of humanity isn't a physical deliverance from physical enemies. The greatest need of humanity is a deliverance from the debt of our sin and the debt of our wrongdoing. As a people, we have replaced, rejected the place of God in our lives, and we have replaced it with our own hearts, with our own self, with our own things. We have replaced the worship of God with the worship of ourself and with our own things and the worship of the other people. And the Bible refers to this as sin. And the Bible also tells us that because God is supremely good, he can't abide those who are tainted by sin in his presence. Can you see how the Bible story makes it clear that good works can't save us. There is this debt that is owed, and if we are going to do the right things that we were supposed to be doing the entire time, these good works, it won't erase that debt. And yet Titus chapter 2, verse 11, tells us that the grace of God has appeared in Jesus That when Jesus appears, he takes the debt we could not pay and he gives us this right standing before God that we could never earn. And in doing that, Jesus has made made a way for us to enter into God's presence once more. This is the foundation of the Christian life. It's the grace of Jesus in the gospel. But Paul doesn't just say, this is what's so powerful about about Titus chapter 2. Paul doesn't just say that this grace is, is the key to salvation. That's certainly true. But he also says that this grace of God that has appeared, it does something in addition to bringing us into the family of God. In other words, the grace of God doesn't just get us in the door and then we have to fend for ourselves afterwards. It does something else as well. Take a look at verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. We're going to take a moment, in a few moments, to look at the specifics, but don't miss the heart of what Paul is saying. Really, this just boils down to this key statement. For the grace of God appeared training us to live. That's the heart of verses 11 and 12. Everything else supports that. For the grace of God has appeared, and that grace trains us, it instructs us, it shows us how to live. This is the key to understanding Paul's statement here. This is the heart of what it looks like for us to live a life of Jesus, like Jesus. That the grace of God trains us to live in a certain way. 
It's not just that God's grace saves us at the beginning. It also shows us what gospel priorities look like in our lives. And if you have any hope for a life of faithfulness, any hope to live a life of good works, which remember is something that Jesus has saved us for, then you need grace not just to save you, but to train you instruct you, show you how to live like Jesus, to live a life of good works. This is the foundation of the Christian life. The Christian life is rooted in the grace of the gospel, the grace of God in the gospel from the beginning to the end. That there is not a day of following Jesus where we don't need the grace of God in the gospel. This is why we define good works as obedience to Jesus, for Jesus, by the power of Jesus. That we need the grace of the gospel to enable us to live a life that is pleasing to God. A life that is rooted in the grace of the gospel from beginning to end. But what are the specifics of that life that is rooted in the gospel from beginning to end? What are... What are the specifics of this training and this instruction? That's what Paul focuses on in the next section here. Verses 12 and and 13, he, he describes what specifically it looks like for Christians to live like Jesus. If you were to ask the question, what should a Christian look like? You're going to get a lot of answers, a lot of very different answers. But if you were able to boil things down to just the key like, not the specifics, but what is the heart attitude? What exactly is happening in the lives of those who follow Jesus, or what should be happening in the lives of those who are following Jesus? And you look at that across the globe over the last 2,000 years. Titus chapter 2 tells us that there should be at least three things that are happening in the Christian's life. That's what this passage is saying to us training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those verses reveal to us three characteristics, high-level characteristics, yes, not specifics, but three high-level characteristics of what a Christian's life should look like. The first one is this, a Christian's life should be one that is increasingly abandoning the bad. A Christian should increasingly be abandoning the bad things in their life. This is what Paul is saying when he says, the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That we, as followers of Jesus, should not be surprised when the grace of the gospel calls us to live differently than those who are around us. That we should not be surprised when it means that we have different priorities, that we have different affections, that we respond differently when we have been wronged, when we are under pressure. I love the way the Apostle Peter puts it in 1 Peter. He's writing to the entire church. When things are, are starting to go poorly for the church throughout the Roman Empire, he's writing this letter and he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter 
is saying the exact same thing that Paul is here. He's just using different language. As Christians, we are no longer controlled by the passions that once controlled us, that control those who are around us. And the reason is because we are sojourners, that we are exiles. I'm convinced that there is probably nothing greater that we can do to equip the next generation to live faithfully in following Jesus than to teach them what does it mean to be a sojourner, to be an exile in this day and age. It is not only a possibility, but it is an increasing necessity that, Christi- that Christians will look increasingly different from those who are around them, that they will have different values, that they will have different priorities, that they will increasingly see themselves as those who do not have a a true home, as those who hold dual citizenship, that their, their true home is with Jesus and the new creation and the new heavens and the new earth, that they are just sojourners in this world. Paul's words here in in Titus chapter 2, verse 12, clearly show us how sharp this break with with the old way of doing things should be. He says to renounce or or to abandon this type of thinking. This isn't a gradual weaning off, a complete and utter abandonment of the old way. Complete and utter abandonment of the way that we used to think, the way we used to act. That if we are going to live a life of good works because Jesus is concerned with our good works, then we will make every effort to make a clean break with the world, a clean break with its ways. That this Christian life should be one that is increasingly abandoning the bad. But that's not all Paul says here. He says also that the Christian life should be one that increasingly pursues the good. That there are good things in this life that are worth pursuing. He, he gives us a little taste of this, a little glimpse when he, he says that this life uh, uh, of one who is self-controlled, upright, and godly, that's not comprehensive. That's just a, a little sliver of what it looks like to follow Jesus faithfully in this present age. If you talk to skeptics about one of the reasons why they object to the existence of God or why they can't follow Jesus, uh, one of the reasons that, that some people will point out is that they perceive that God is only concerned with telling us what not to do. That God is a, just a massive fun sucker, to use the language that people have used with me. It's really weird language, but, but that's what they have used. And this calling of the gospel certainly tells us to get rid of certain things in our lives, but that... But good works aren't just focused on on removing things or abandoning things. They're also focused on cultivating a heart that is like Jesus' heart. If you want a flourishing garden, you don't just pull the weeds. You also have to plant the, the flowers that you want or the fruits and the vegetables that you want to have this garden that actually is worth having. And this is the other facet of the Christian life. It's not just abandoning the bad, it's also pursuing the good. It's recognizing that the only life that is worth living is the one that seeks to be like Jesus. And I mentioned that Paul gives us some examples in verse 12 of what this looks like. It's it's not comprehensive. It's probably just addressing the specific issues that, that Titus was facing in Crete. Elsewhere, Paul tells us what this spirit-directed life will increasingly look like. Galatians chapter 5, 
But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. If you want to be someone, to use the language of Paul in verse 14, if you want to be someone who is zealous for good works, then start right here to pursue love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is what it looks like to be a Christian, to increasingly grow in these things, that the, the Spirit of God is working in you. You're increasingly pursuing the good, the only things that are worth pursuing in this life. Paul tells us another thing of, of what should define a Christian's life in verse 13. He says that this Christian life should be one that increasingly longs for Jesus' return. Increasingly longs for Jesus' return, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the overarching motivation, and it's the overarching hope of those who are going to follow Jesus. It is the age to come. Notice how verse 12 ends. Paul says that we are to live godly lives in this present age, and then he immediately contrasts that with Jesus' return or the, the age that is to come. And there's some significance here because this is the overarching motivation for those who would follow Jesus today. He contrasts this present life of following Jesus with the return of Christ. And by doing that, Paul is saying that when you're a spirit-led Christian, what you should be doing is you follow Jesus, increasingly grow to be more like Jesus by the power of the Spirit, that you are going to live in a way where the everlasting and eternal kingdom of God is breaking into your life right now. That our future lives, when we follow Jesus forever in his kingdom, will increasingly, our, our lives today will increasingly look like that. One day, when Jesus returns, we're going to completely and fully follow the ethic of the kingdom of God. That everyone who is found in the new creation will be fully loving. They will be completely filled with joy. They will live in complete peace. They will be completely patient. They will be abundant in kindness. They will be utterly good. They will be fully faithful, completely gentle, completely in control of self. That they will be completely upright and godly, to borrow Paul's language here from Titus chapter 2. And when we realize that that is what awaits us in the life to come, it motivates us to live in this present age in that way. Not fully, but in increasing measure. But the return of Christ is not just a motivation for following him now, it's also our increasing hope. That the more that we abandon the bad and the more that we pursue the good, the more our hopes and our affections are turned toward the life to come. No wonder Paul, when he's talking about this return of Christ as, as his blessed hope, it's because he's been doing this for, for decades. He's been following Jesus faithfully. The more he has turned his heart toward Jesus, the more he longs for Jesus. It just increases. It just builds upon itself. Later this week, Crystal and I are going to celebrate our 10th anniversary. And, and I loved Crystal a whole lot when we got married, and it's nothing compared to the way I love her now. And that's the way it is with, with all of life, isn't it? Both good things and bad things. The more that we pursue something, the more it captures our heart. 
This is true of our spouse and our job. It's true of following Jesus, and it's also true of our possessions. The more that we pursue something, the more that we feed that longing, the more it controls our hearts, the more it consumes our hearts, our hopes, our thoughts, our dreams. And what Paul is saying here is that our hearts should be increasingly captured by a longing for Jesus' return. And the more you feed that longing, the more you place your hope in that longing, it will grow. Do you long for Jesus' return more than you did five years ago? Are we a people who are growing to be more like Christ? Has Jesus' return captured our heart? This is our great motivation and our great hope in life. The rest of this passage gives us a glimpse of Jesus' heart for his people, this incredible gift revealing to us the heart of Jesus and why he saves people. Verse 14 makes that very clear. It gives us three reasons why God saves people. Not comprehensive, just three specific reasons. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Before we jump into those three reasons, just take a moment and marvel at how it describes this salvation. It says that our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gives himself, gave himself for us. When we say that the grace of God appeared back in verse 11, bringing salvation for people It means that Jesus has given himself willingly. Why? Three reasons. The first is for us, that Jesus gives himself for us. Beginning in verse 14, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Jesus gives himself to save those who are now adopted brothers and sisters in the family of God. He knows that they are trapped in sin, in this lawlessness, that that we were unable to free ourselves from our hell-bound captivity. And when Jesus gives himself, he gives himself freely in order to free you from death and hell forever. Jesus gives himself for us Second reason in verse 14, why does Jesus save people? It was for him. It was for himself. But Jesus gave himself because he had something to gain from it. Verse 14, again, Jesus gave himself to purify for himself a people for his own possession. In other words, that Jesus didn't die to just save you from an unthinkable future. He did for that reason, but he also did it because he wanted something out of it. That he wanted a pure and holy people for his own. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus in the book of Ephesians, and he puts this truth in perspective. He's writing this prayer. He says this, For this reason I remember you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. In other words, what he's saying is saying, I am praying 
that God would give you the right eyes to see that he considers you his inheritance, that you are his prize, that Jesus doesn't just save you because you are in desperate need of saving, but because he wants a group of people who will live with him for all eternity, who are perfectly holy, perfectly pure, and perfectly fully his own. That when he frees us from slavery to sin, we have a new master. That we are now his possession. So Jesus saves us for ourselves, for us, but he also saves us because that is what he delights in. That he wants it. That he has saved us for himself. There's a third reason in verse 14. Jesus saves people for good. Jesus gave himself to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works. What does it mean that Jesus purifies a people? It means that there is this purpose to this new life that you have been given in Jesus this life that is zealous for good works, that the gospel, it transforms our hearts and our affections, that the people of God are not just these people who begrudgingly do good or only do good when it is convenient for them, but that we are a people who are zealous for good works. I love that word zealous, and I am convicted by that word zealous. Because it's not something that you can, you can rationalize away or, or excuse away. Zealous, being zealous is the opposite of being rational. Because when I think of, of someone who is zealous, I think of, of people, and the first thing that comes to mind when I think of those people is the first thing that, that comes to mind when I think of someone else. And what I'm zealous for is what people think of when they think of me. And I've gotten to know a number of people that when I, when I meet them, my, my first impression of them, the thing that I think of is, man, all you think about is sports. You are zealous for sports. And there are other people, when I meet them, I think, man, all you really think about is eating healthy and, and, and working out. Good things but you're zealous for physical health. And there are other people that, that when I meet them, I think, man, all you really care about, all you think about is having the latest and greatest gadget. That you are zealous for your possessions and having the latest and greatest. What if when people thought of us, the first thing that came to mind was that we are zealous for good works. That your life revolves around good works. Remember what that means. Obedience to Jesus, for Jesus, by the power of Jesus. What if when people thought of you, they immediately thought, this is a person who is zealous for good works, that Jesus has saved them 
And he saved them for this reason. Not the only reason, but it's a big reason that his church would be zealous for good works. This past week, my son and I, we were at his t-ball game. Once the game finished up, it was, it was ridiculously hot out this past week, and so we decided to go to the concession stand afterward and to grab something to drink. And I get to the, the front of the line at the concession stand, and I notice that every single person who's in the concession stand is wearing uh, the same shirt, the exact same shirt. Um, and it, it captured my curiosity, and there was some writing on it, so I decided to read it. And I realized that it was a church here in town, that they had committed, hey, we're going to go ahead and, and we're going to serve in the concession stand on this night. And I was driving home, and I just finished working on this sermon, so this sermon was fresh in my mind. And, and I'm driving home, and that kept, kept running through my head. Now, this is a, a small glimpse of what it looks like to be zealous for good works, to be known for good works. And of course, I've, I've already said it. I want to reemphasize. Good works are, are far more than random acts of kindness, but I think everyone who was working in that concession stand would, would agree with that, would say, yes, it's more than just this. But it got, got me to think, what about our church? Are we a people who are zealous for good works? Are we known in our community for good works? Are we pursuing that type of reputation in our community of self-sacrifice, of service to others, of love? Are we even doing that in the church with one another? Are we a people who are zealous for good works? Now, some of us certainly are. But as a whole, as a group, are we a people zealous for good works? Is that our reputation? If you were to ask someone who doesn't go to church here in Spencer, what do you think of Crosswinds? What's their reputation? Would they respond with, well, that's, a, that's a people who are zealous for good works? I don't really think so. Now, there's, there's no real specific application here. Like, I'm not saying, hey, we're going to launch this new initiative. I'm not saying, hey, we need volunteers for VBS, so sign up. That's not the application here. This is the heart of God for his people. That Jesus gave himself for you to be zealous for good works. That Jesus gave himself for you to be zealous for good works. And so are you. Are, are, are you bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Are you increasingly abandoning the bad and pursuing the good? Are you increasingly longing for Jesus' return? Are you actively seeking out ways to love others and serve others inside the church, outside the church? That Jesus gave himself for you to be zealous for good works. told you that this phrase, zealous for good works, is convicting for me. 
because I look at my life and I see that there's this massive gap between what I would consider being zealous for good works and where Jordan actually is. It's a priority. I don't know if it's it's a high priority in my life. We should be a people who are actively thinking of ways where we can actively pursue good works in our lives as the people of God. And this passage reminds us that if we're not doing that, if we are not constantly considering what does it look like to live a life like Jesus, to be zealous for good works, to, then we're, we're actually actively standing against one of the reasons why God saved us. That we're standing opposed to the will of God for our lives. That Jesus has given himself for us to be zealous for good works. Are we? I mentioned that this passage right before this, second, in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, it helps us understand the specifics of what good works are. Paul is he's writing to these various subsections of the church. He writes to older men and older women, younger men, younger women. He writes to, to slaves. And he says, hey, this is how, in your specific context, this is how this looks in your life. And he ends in verse 10 with this beautiful, powerful statement about about good works, about living a life that, that honors Jesus. He says this, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Here's the why. Here's the reason, one of the reasons, why Jesus has given himself to purify a people who are zealous for good works. It's because beautiful works make an already beautiful gospel somehow even more beautiful in the eyes of the world. That's what it means to adorn the gospel here. That these beautiful good works adorn an already beautiful gospel. Jesus gave himself for you to be zealous for good works. He gave himself for our church to be zealous for good works. How can we not respond with a passionate pursuit of obedience to Jesus, for Jesus, by the power of Jesus with our lives? Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this text. And we ask, first and foremost, that you would always, through the power of your Spirit, help us to remember that it is the grace of God that has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. That it is the grace of God that trains us to live in a way that honors you. We ask that you would protect us in our pursuit of doing good. That you would protect us from so easily sliding into this mindset that sees our good works as a way to earn your favor. Or even to repay you for what you have done for us.
God, may it never be. Help us to be a people who see our good works as an act of worship, as a spiritual act of worship to you. God, we ask that you would help us to be a people who increasingly long for your return. That we see the kingdom of God continually and increasingly break in to this present age and our lives, that our lives would be increasingly conformed to the ethic of your forever kingdom. Jesus, we thank you for giving yourself for us. We thank you for purifying us. Help us to be a people who are zealous for obedience to Jesus, for Jesus, by the power of Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. One of the